Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gina. And I'm Nicole. And today we are dishing with Megan McNamee of Feeding Littles, all about, well, of course, feeding littles. But first, let's do some catching up. Nicole, what's new? Well, we had some bracket busters, huh, Gina? <laughs> oh my gosh, big time. Yes. Big, big bracket busters. I, it was Aww. supposed to be a big year for the Big Ten, but uh, crash and burn. Crash yeah. and burn. Uh, so when this comes out, I'm trying to think. Um, let me see. It's coming out. Yeah, like the final four weekend. Yeah, Easter. Um, yeah, I think it's fine. Uh, maybe the following weekend is. I don't know. You can, you definitely stay stay up up on that much more than I do. So I have no idea. I, ever since at this Illinois point. lost terribly to Loyola, I I kind of lost touch. But yeah, mm-hmm. OSU lost. That's your team. Illinois lost. Mm-hmm. That's my team. Sad days. Um, yeah. yeah. There's always next year. Always next year. <laughs> um, and I've been pretty busy. Things at work are busy. And then I was asked to captain um, hockey at hockey again. And, you know, it's 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 all good. I do enjoy doing it, but it just adds like one more thing. And you know this about me, Gina. I am just not an organized person. <laughs> so I don't know. I disagree with that. You don't give yourself enough credit, in my opinion. You know, I, I'm just a ninth in, inning kind of girl, but I just can't do that. Yeah, w- with hockey. So I, I need to be more organized and we'll see. Um, so it's good. There's just a lot of new blood in the league, which is good. Um, but drafting it was like really stressful. I'm like, OK, do I pick Hayden or Jeff? Like who sounds like they're going to be a better more fun hockey player. You know, like it's just so arbitrary like, when you don't <laughs> right. know these people. Um, so you don't know any of them. I know a lot of them, but I don't know all of them. OK, OK. Got it, it seems like adult hockey in our area is just exploding, which mm-hmm. is fabulous. Um, it does, however, mean that we've taken we've grown from four teams to now eight teams and we've split those eight teams into two different leagues. And mm-hmm. so the old people, which Mark is playing in that league, the 40 and up league, they have mm-hmm. the two earlier games. And so the early, my early game now, because I'm playing in the C division, is 820 and then the late game is 935. And the game before mine last night, I had the early game, went into a shootout. So our early game did not start until 845. So we weren't even getting off the ice until 10. It's just, you know, that's just, it's just rough to start your week because I play on Sunday nights. It's hard to start your week sleep deprived because I get home and I shower and then I'm wired and I'll read my book until midnight and I'm still awake. Oh my gosh. I know it's, it's really not an ideal situation, but I do it for the love of hockey. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not going to complain about it, but it's not ideal. Yeah. If that's the only time, yeah, you, you got to do what you got to do. I agree. And I can't, I, I, my complaints will fall on deaf ears because a lot of these people are traveling upwards of an hour to get to the rink and I travel oh two miles and I've historically always traveled great distances to get to the rink. Um, where wherever we've lived, even in, you know, when we live near you, there's so many rinks in Columbus. It just depended on which one I was playing at, but it was easily 30, 40 minutes, depending on where I was going. So the people who are traveling that far don't get home till sometimes 11 o'clock. Oh, easily. That's if they stay and don't hang out and watch the next game. Yeah. Wow. 
I mean, there's usually a lot of loitering going on, <laughs> just hanging out and yeah. usually outdoors, just, yeah, chilling, catching up. Because wow. everybody's wired after that. <laughs> sure. So. Oh, yeah. I completely understand that. Anyway, uh, what's going on with you guys? Well, wait, what about Easter Bunny? Well, I guess we should say now's the time to push pause on the come back later if you're with little children. Um, but what about Easter? Easter plans? Yeah, we're making we are um, not going to be home for Easter. So the oh, Easter right. Bunny um, has visited early and has everything packed and ready to go into the car to go to grandma and grandpa's. Oh, perfect. Now, is this going to be your mom and dad or Mark's? No, Mark's mom and dad. OK, oh, yep. perfect. Yeah. Nice. Easter is yeah. always I feel like it always falls around spring break, which is also right around both my father-in-law and my mother's birthday. They share mm-hmm. a birthday. On oh, April first, yeah, April Fool's Day. Uh, so I don't know. I feel like Easter is just one of those holidays for us that is kind of hit or miss. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What about you guys? Yeah, it's it's funny. We have a lot of Easter birthdays as well. In fact, my mother in law's birthday is in April. I'm sorry, we have a lot of April birthday birthdays, but my dad's is April fourth, and so of course this year that's Easter. It's fallen on Easter before. I know this is not the first time, um, but yeah. So we always. We never have really large Easter plans, but we generally do, you know, a late lunch somewhere or early dinner somewhere, do a little Easter egg hunt, and of course have the Easter bunny that he comes over, or she, who knows, um, <laughs> overnight. And um, I, I, I don't know, it's usually just quiet and and relaxing. And that's what I think it's going to be like this year. I'm looking forward to it. Again, it's my dad's birthday. So we'll actually go to his house uh, with his wife, Paula, and we'll probably hang out there most of the day. So that okay. would be fun. I do have a question about the Easter Bunny in Ohio. Yeah. <clears throat> the sure. Ohio Easter Bunny. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Is, is it like a birthday Christmas kind of celebration or is this like eggs only? You mean like how do you guys celebrate? Is is it are there gifts? And like you, is a is the basket overflowing? Uh, oh, OK. So hmm, I think relatively speaking, I have seen some Instagram posts. No. Like I have seen some seriously overflowing Easter baskets. That is not, I do not intend to ever be that parent. Um, I don't want the Easter bunny to be that type of bunny here in Ohio. <laughs> um, I will also say I, I prefer that the Easter bunny brings half candy, half, you know, little gifts or, or practical things. Uh, some things that I would like the Easter bunny to bring this year include perhaps like some wireless headphones because Cameron doesn't have any, a new umbrella for Paige because hers broke, things like that. Uh, maybe some stickers and then of course some fun Easter candy on the side. That would be ideal. Uh, maybe some art supplies would be nice as well. What about, what about your Easter bunny in Michigan? Yeah. Lack of planning, uh, for the (laughs) Easter bunny. (laughs) Shocker. Um, this year is going to, there is a stuffed animal, I believe that the Easter bunny will bring. Um, and I think an LOL, like a little like LOL surprise. Yeah. Is it Paige into that stuff? I don't know. No, no, she's not. And I, and I, I, she's seen it. She just does not, she has not grasped onto that. Uh, so I think maybe she will bypass the LOL. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so wait, speaking of that, I know we talked about this last year, but what is your favorite Easter candy? And now and as a kid. Not, just nothing fruity. I like either... Yeah. I do love peeps and I love Cadbury eggs and I love those Robin's eggs, like the malted milk oh. ball. Oh, you don't you like had those? me at peep. You had me at Cadbury egg because I love them both. 
but the malted balls. <laughs> really? What about you? I just, no. I, I love Peeps and Cadbury eggs. You posted that thing on on Instagram today, I love Cadbury eggs. Mm-hmm. Nick was like, you better not be buying them any Cadbury eggs. I'm like, uh, you better believe I did. They're expensive. <laughs> of course, my favorite, I, I would say my favorite, if you, if you count this as an Easter candy, the, the Cadbury eggs. Yeah. They're like a dollar. But I guess that is kind of expensive <laughs> Maybe when they, a little piece of candy. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> when they deliver it to your house, it's more like a dollar I'm like, ooh, that's kind of steep. I don't know. Oh, probably. Yes. A little bit more expensive. No, but the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups eggs are obviously the best. Oh, yeah. Those are good. Oh, killer. Uh, the only other update that I have is that Paige lost her first tooth today. Ooh. And by lost it, she had to have it extracted by the dentist. So, okay, she's had this wiggly tooth for some time and it has gotten, you know, increasingly wiggly to the point where she, her adult tooth is actually has popped through mm-hmm. and was coming in like sideways in the back of her mouth. She looked like a shark, like she had shark teeth, basically. <laughs> Um, it was really creepy looking. So I took a picture of it and sent it to the dentist. He's like, yeah, that needs to come out. So I told her all weekend, I said, listen, either I can take it out now or we're going to have to bring you to the dentist to extract it. And she said, I don't want to do either. No, no, no. It was just a whole thing all weekend long. Oh my gosh. And, uh, finally I brought, I picked her up from school today and, uh, brought her straight to the dentist. We had to pin her down. There was lots of screaming, lots of crying, oh, and no. it's it's gone. <laughs> it didn't hurt. It could not have hurt. I mean, it was literally hanging by a thread. So I, yeah, it's gone, and she's she's thankful. I, I know she's just like that was just a huge weight off her shoulder for sure because we've been talking about it for days. <laughs> so now the Easter or not the Easter Bunny. Now the Tooth Fairy has to come. Yeah, I was telling her before. I'm like. You need to hold on so you can wait for the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy to come on the same night. So I think I I, I kind of got her excited, but then I'm like, wait a second, that's not. This was two weeks ago. Like, wait a second, we cannot wait that long. <laughs> so yes, we got it extracted for a, a, a mere two hundred and ten dollars. Are you kidding? <laughs> I was like, I was like, wait, wait, wait. They, he didn't have to numb her. You you do know that, right? Like, there were no needles. There was no numbing. He literally just put a pair of gloves on put his finger in there and took out her tooth. $210? Oh my gosh. I, need, I should have been a dentist. What was I thinking? <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know. Right. They're pretty gross. They are. I would never want to do that. I did not at all. Let's just say, yeah, I, I felt bad for him at the time. Honestly, he, <laughs> she actually bit him. So I, yeah, she, he goes, don't bite me. But after I'm finished, you can bite me. How's that? And she's like, okay. Anyway, all right. <laughs> so on we go. <laughs> uh, before we begin, just a quick favor to ask if you like this podcast, please write us a review. Reviews on iTunes are everything to us and they really help us reach more people. So we'd appreciate it very much. I know we've actually had a couple recently, uh, just some stars filled in, which we appreciate. Today, we are talking with Megan McNamee, a registered dietitian and co-owner of Feeding Littles, an online and video-based learning platform geared towards helping parents raise balanced eaters starting the moment they begin to explore the wonderful world of food. Let's go ahead and bring Megan on. All right. Well, Megan, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome to our podcast. We are truly delighted to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And you're in Arizona, correct? I am. I am in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is usually nice and sunny. So fortunately, we're is, getting we're, our heat is coming back, but it's been kind of a cold winter. 
cold. So like, what is your definition of cold? You're talking to an Ohio and Michigan girl right now. (laughs) Yeah, right. I grew up in Minnesota, so I totally appreciate that. Um, But you get really, like, I think I'm convinced you can only do one extreme or the other. So you can either be really hot or really cold. And I have now completely adapted to only doing really hot. So at night, overnight, (laughs) it'll be like the low 40s. Oh, okay. And it's pretty cold. Like I, I usually walk every morning and I, I wear a coat. <laughs> but the 40s and other, other places, you know, that's when people start wearing shorts again. So I totally appreciate that too. <laughs> yeah, it's 40 here. And actually we were just talking about how we are still cold. So I'm with you. I would be wearing a jacket and I still am wearing a jacket as well. So, yeah. all right. So other than the fact that you live in Arizona, tell us a little bit about you, your job and your background. Sure. So um, I am a reg- registered dietitian nutritionist. I feel like adding that nutritionist at the end now is such a mouthful um, to say, <laughs> but I've been a dietitian for, let's see, um, 15 years now, which is crazy because I'm only 25. Um, no, I'm 37. <laughs> and I have um, two kids and a husband and a dog that live with me. Um, I am a co- the co-owner of Feeding Littles. And so my business partner, Judy, and I have created online courses and, and online resources for parents with kids. And, you know, a lot of times people think, wow, what a great business model. You, you knew how to kind of do exactly what you wanted, started it from, you know, scratch. And now look, you, you're, you're kind of doing your dream job, but it was a complete accident, a complete <laughs> accident how we all, we began this. And it's really morphed into something we never really thought it would be. So we're just kind of along for the ride, I guess, at this point. Wow. I want to, I want to fall into something as a complete accident that ends up being extremely successful. (laughs) Well, you know, it's also super painful along the way. I mean, we, we started in 2014 and I don't think we actually started like making any money to 2018. So it was kind of a risk career wise because it was just hard to keep pouring so much of it into, you know, I should say it was an accident how it started, but it definitely took a lot of time and sweat and tears and more tears Mm. to kind of to make it something that could actually sustain my income and not be, you know, me also doing 50 other little odd jobs that many of us dietitians do Mm. um, just to stay afloat. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, makes sense. I love the entrepreneurship. That's very cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool and crazy because my husband and Judy and her husband were all entrepreneurs. So I don't know how we got ourselves into this mess, but we, um, (laughs) we, it's just kind of cool because we're surrounded by others that are like-minded and it's fun to, my husband and I were so different. We met in college and we were really different than each other. I was really driven and he was really relaxed and we kind of laughed, like what is keeping us, we're so polar opposites about so many things and what's keeping us together. And once he found his passion and decided he wanted to work for himself, he actually owns a window and door company. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually really nerdily passionate about it. Um, he, <laughs> once he figured that out, it was really awesome to see that part of him, like that come out and like that business drive. And now we can relate on so many levels and everyone's like, well, you guys are just perfect for each other because this is, you know, you're so well matched in your passions and your career, but we didn't know that obviously. And I just think you sometimes have to trust, you know, it's, it's with career too, and your relationships. Like if it feels right, like you're probably on the right path. You just have to trust it too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, as a bit of an icebreaker, Megan, what kind of eater were you as a child? 
So, I mean, this is going to get like a little bit sad right right off the bat. <laughs> but as a child, I was an adventurous eater. And then I got like sucked straight into diet culture really mm-hmm. young. So I was a restrictive eater. And it like hurts me to even think about that for my kids because I have two girls and one is eight and one is five. And they are getting not too far away from that age. Yeah. So you were so quite young when I was young and I, um, my mom was a Weight Watcher fanatic. And of course, if she's listening to this, she is probably, getting, <laughs> she always feels bad. I'm like, mom, you didn't, we've talked about this a million times. Like that's just what she did and what she knew. Um, mm-hmm. and I, we just didn't really eat real foods at home. Like everything was like a low fat modified type food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I always was, I was always jealous of the people whose moms made them like, a, you know, chicken alfredo with pasta or something you know (laughs) so i i don't have a lot of food memories before any of that to be honest yeah and nicole nicole and i have talked about that on this podcast a few times about our just our history with dieting and um just diet culture and and we've both well i know especially me i've talked about how my mom she wasn't a weight watchers person or really any diet per se but she always talked about her weight and got on the scale that didn't affect me until high school. So it took a little bit of more time. Um, but yeah, I, I can definitely relate. And I think Nicole can too. Megan okay, doesn't so, know about this me, but I worked for Weight Watchers in college. That's oh, right. yeah. Well, I know. I mean, Crazy. You know, there's, there's actually, there was a lot that I did just learn about food there too. But I actually went to Weight Watchers as a kid with my mom, not for mm. me. But mm-hmm. I watched her get weighed in and kind of get excited if she got, you know, what did you, they're the ribbons. I remember those ribbons. And if you hit your goal weight and kept it, then you were like a lifetime member. And it was just, oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, and man. kept it for how long? Like how, how long until you're like a lifetime know. member, like a year? Like, I don't know. But if you were a lifer, then you could yeah. go to the meetings for free. Is this correct? Oh, yes. mm-hmm. okay. Huh. Yep. Interesting. Yep. All right. So we're sort of taking a turn here. And, you know, this, the title of this episode, and I love that, you know, especially when we have conversations with other dietitians, I feel like we just go every which way and that is okay. I love that. So the episode today that we're, we're actually calling it kind of how to expand or how to make your child more adventurous in the kitchen or just kind of expand their palate. And would you say, Megan, and I don't know how much you know about this, would you say that expanding your child's palate begins in the womb and it does a little bit depend on what the mother eats or is there no correlation there? Like based on the evidence that we have, yes, there is, there is some correlation. I don't know how strong it is for... You know, there, there, there's a correlation, but I, I also, I hate to um, discourage people that maybe felt horrible when they were pregnant yes. and eat the foods that they normally would eat. I personally think that what happens after the baby is here can be more influential just based on what I've seen in practice. Mm-hmm. I think your child might be more likely to like certain flavors, like spicy flavors or cruciferous yeah. specials, really strong flavors. You know, those are past in, um, in the womb and also through breast milk. But if you didn't breastfeed or if you didn't like those flavors or couldn't tolerate those, it doesn't mean your kid won't either. Right. Once they're here. Um, But you know, if, if you have to have an excuse to tell your partner to go get you your famous, like your favorite crispy Brussels sprouts at your favorite restaurant or something, because you're (laughs) pregnant and you want the baby to experience that flavor. I think that's awesome. I just, I, I, I definitely think there's a correlation, but I don't think it's, I don't want to discourage parents that if they didn't eat that, that they can't, you know, they're, they're doomed from the start. No, I love that. I'm so glad that you said that. Cause I, th- I thought about that, that question. And then also the following question, which Nicole will ask, which was kind of related, but 
because I've heard about this. I, I just truly didn't know, but you're so right there. Are, I don't want to, I don't want women to feel guilty if they didn't eat, you know, a quote unquote balanced diet with lots of vegetables and fruits and then blame themselves if their child is a picky eater. Cause that's, I mean, I, I agree with you. It has more to do with, you know, how you raise your child and you showing a good example for your children. Um, but I, yeah, I, I just wondered if there was research and I knew I'd read it before, but that's good yeah. to hear that there is at least some research out there that says that. And at least you can do something for your kid when they're, hey. you know, in your womb a little bit. And I also want to add like a little caveat too. picky eating is so much more than even just the environment. Um, it's really based on genetics um, you know, the development mm-hmm. of their sensory system and their development, like their, their development in general. Um, so even if you've done everything quote unquote, right, which is obviously a tricky thing to say in general, there's not really one right way, but if you've done everything that can help your child become an adventurous eater and they're still not, yeah, some, some of these, these elements are out of our control. Some of these influences, you know, if our mm-hmm. child is has some issues with chewing or struggles to tolerate a certain texture in their mouth, no matter what you do, they, they need help with that before they're, they're going to be able to fully move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. See, it, you kind of added this to Gina's last question, but just to clarify for women who do choose to breastfeed, how truly does what she, the mom, you know, eating uh, affect her infant's palate, if at all? It definitely does. And I, I, I I don't um, know the exact like correlate statistics. Mm-hmm. I probably could have looked that up, but mm-hmm. um, it definitely does. And if you've breastfed, you might know that like if you eat a lot of garlic, your breast milk can smell like garlic. Um, mm-hmm. You can color the breast, your breast milk with what you eat. Super yeah. like weird sciencey, you know, science experiment style. I used to eat, I loved um, putting kale and like different things in my smoothies and I could turn my breast milk green. <laughs> also <laughs> creepy, but awesome. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's different flavor profiles, breast milk from different women tastes a little bit different. Um, and depending on what you eat, you can change that. But at the same time, it's, it's just part of the picture. So if you are breastfeeding, you're able to breastfeed and you want to keep doing it, eating a variety of different flavors is awesome. Um, but if you're surviving on, you know, cold coffee and like leftovers from your toddler, because that's what you're doing right now. You know, I, I, I would definitely drop that guilt because you still have yeah. plenty of opportunity to offer them other, you know, variety of foods. Right. And then same for women who choose to use formula. And this right. is just a random thought that I just thought of. I wonder when they're going to start like, creating, you know, powdered forms of exactly what you just said, like a little bit of kale that can get into the formula, the like, same amount that would have gotten into your breast milk if you'd had like a kale salad. I'm right. surprised they're not doing that yet. Well, the thing that's tricky, I think, is because we know we don't want to offer like complementary foods till closer to six months. And so right. even though formula is obviously made from foods, um, I don't know. I don't know if they would do that or change like the, the flavor profile. Yeah, in it. I, don't I don't know. know. Just a random thought. All right. <laughs> so we did an episode on baby led weaning, which was episode nine for those of you who want to go back and listen to that. Uh, we, I know you have a, a lot of great tips on your Instagram page. If our listeners are interested, um, for more information, I would definitely highly encourage them to go to your Instagram page. Um, but I have a question about just the introduction via baby led weaning. Does, do you, how helpful do you think that is? And again, I'm kind of go back to those last two questions. I know if you didn't do baby led weaning, the idea here isn't to make you feel guilty or if you don't feel comfortable doing it, which some parents don't, the idea is not to make you feel guilty, but. Do you have any good information on how 
helpful that is truly for the textures and, you know, the different variety of foods for, for kids to kind of expand their palate and their uh, ability to eat more foods. Sure. So we do have some data that, you know, um, the types of textures that kids are eating by around nine months can be correlated with pickier or less pickier eating by the time they're seven. Um, and the reason that we teach baby led weaning, not, not assuming that everyone wants to do it, but the reason that we, we do love it for a lot of our clients is that it, um, for, it's twofold. It first off gets them exposed to a variety of safe textures from the start. It's really easy to get stuck in purees. Um, Judy uses purees all the time with her clients. It's not that we, we don't think that their, you know, baby food is a bad thing per se. It's just that if you don't graduate out of them or start offering finger foods, um, relatively quickly, it's, it's easy for everyone in the family to the baby and the parents included to kind of get stuck in that phase. And they're kind of missing out on those, some of those developmental steps of learning to chew lateralization, all that stuff. If they are only doing purees, mm-hmm. um, again, barring medical issues, obviously. Um, another thing that I really like about it, I guess I have three things that I really like about it. The second one would be that it allows you to kind of develop that, um, or continue, I guess, developing that, um, what Satter calls division of responsibility or what kind of that feeding dynamic where your child is presented with a food, they choose how much to eat and you're not in control of how much they eat. Mm-hmm. And because when a baby self feeds, you can't make them eat more. Um, you are continuing to honor those hunger and fullness cues that, that have been around since birth that your baby has shown you by turning their head away when they're breast or bottle feeding or, you know, <laughs> crying, kind of um, rooting, all of those things that they do when they show you that they're hungry. You're mm-hmm. continuing with that. So you're literally continuing to offer those, those um, or honor those cues as your baby gets older. And they're really important because we want our kids to know when they're hungry and when they're full and to be able to listen to those signals. Sometimes we get really excited about finishing the jar or finishing the bowl of baby food, right? And we want to get it in their mouth. But if they've turned their head away or they've shown that they're not interested anymore, it's so important to honor that. And so it is easier when they're self-feeding to allow that to happen because you're not making them eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one more thing that I really like about it is, I mean, that we have a whole, we actually have a whole handout of like benefits of this. But one major thing is that um, your baby's been observing you this whole time. You know, say you start sellers around six months. For six months, they've watched you eat. Maybe it's, you know, while they're breastfeeding or (laughs) formula feeding and you're literally spilling food on top of them as you eat yourself. But um, they've seen eating and they know what it looks like. And when you allow them to feed themselves real foods, they get to model what they've been watching this whole time. And it's really cool because you can see how much they've been observing when they start to work with food. Um, they know oftentimes even what to do with a spoon. If you hand them a loaded spoon, they know that goes right in my mouth. They know, you know, oftentimes to even hand it back to you. So it's pretty fascinating. Um, it's to me, it's just kind of a natural progression of what you've been doing, you know, responsive feeding and and really paying attention to those cues this whole time. Mm -hmm. And, and Megan, when you said lateralization, are you talking about like how kids take food into their mouth and sort of with their tongue, get it to the back of their mouth safely? Yes, to the sides, side to side. So when they bring food into their mouth, we want them to bring it to the side where their their molars will be. This is totally not stuff any of us learned in dietitian school, by the way. <laughs> totally new world to me when I met Judy. Um, but we want them to 
to not just swallow that food. Obviously, we want them to chew first and then swallow. And mm-hmm. so what they're practicing when they're, um, you know, six months is they're just, they're oftentimes just putting that stick-shaped soft piece of food, like a wedge of an avocado, back on their gums and kind of munching up and down. And then they're going to eventually move their tongue side to side. So when the food gets in their mouth, they bring it to the side. And then eventually they have more of a sophisticated, what's called a rotary chew pattern. So all of this is happening when we don't even realize it, right? As parents, Mm -hmm. we're like, oh, cool. They're eating more. They're doing better, you know? Um, But that practice and exposure really allows them to um, be comfortable with different textures and really work on all of those muscles in their mouth so that they have not only muscles for eating, but then also development of muscles and coordination for speech. Mm, Okay. Yeah. And would you also then say that's kind of one of the reasons why baby led weaning might actually be helpful in preventing choking in the long run? It could be. I think we're still waiting on data. We know that baby led weaning is just as safe Mm -hmm. as, um, you know, traditional feeding, if you will, with spoon feeding, Mm -hmm. as long as non-choking hazard foods are provided. Mm -hmm. Um, And what a lot of families have found is that their child like has to immediately learn how to chew. Mm-hmm. It's not like insert, you know, puree swallow. They immediately learn how to chew. And if you think about mm-hmm. it, even with like a, um, a smoothie, do you guys chew your smoothies? Mm, no. <laughs> no. Most of us don't. A lot of times we're kind of accustomed to just swallowing pureed textures. So right. it is nice that they do. I, I just, I don't know if we have enough data to compare directly. But it is really nice that they have to chew from the start. Now, I will say if kids are struggling and they just are not getting it, they are gagging constantly and it's not getting better and they're not figuring out the chewing thing, then we do oftentimes jump, you know, come back, back, peel back a layer and go to purees and, you know, doing loaded spoons of purees. That's actually something we we talk about in the troubleshooting section of our infant course if this isn't working for you, your, your kiddo might need another approach, but Mm -hmm. the goal is for, you know, most babies barring medical issues to be self-feeding various soft textures by no later than 12 to 14 months. So even if you don't start with baby led weaning, we still want to be self, you know, working towards self-feeding relatively soon. Okay. Megan, I know you alluded to um, Ellen Satter and the division of responsibilities, but the quote on your Instagram that says your job is to let your child eat, not to not to get your child to eat is phenomenal. Can you unpack that a bit more for us? Sure. So that's from Jenny McLaughlin, um, who spoke at the Responsive Feeding Conference a few months ago. And, you know, it's so interesting because the feeding world and the nutrition world are kind of, in my mind, a little separated. Mm-hmm. And... I think we could all benefit so much from learning from each other. Um, And that's what, you know, Judy and I were really one of the first dietitian feeding therapy duos that actually had a product for people that, you know, weren't working necessarily like in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And we realized there was so much that we could benefit in teaching each other. Um, And so when I went to this conference, I was just blown away because I think Jenny McLaughlin is brilliant and um, she's a and a speech language pathologist that works with really picky kids. And I think that when we talk about, you know, you provide the food, they decide how much to eat. So many times parents are like, yeah, yeah, but my kid's super picky or they're not growing well. I have to force them to eat. That doesn't apply to me. Mm -hmm. And she was actually using this in the context of what they use in practice for the most selective of kids. Because 
when we start forcing or cajoling them to eat or we make it a, a battle, it, it doesn't actually help in the long run. And it might get them to eat something now, but it won't necessarily hold that motivation for them to continue to eat it down the road. And she used so many examples in this, this talk about how they still know, even with the most particular of ch- child, they don't use a force feeding modality and how it's so, um, you know, when they really unpack what, what's happening at home and where is that pressure, how are parents, um, you know, are they staring at, are they staring at them for every bite to see how much they're eating or are they only serving them a certain food and they have to finish all that before they get something else? They really noticed um, there were some things that they could work on in the family structure and environment at home that, and then also therapeutically, right? So why is this child not eating? What is happening with them that we can help them get along this path further? And once they kind of combine the two, it's really amazing how um, how much more successful that was. And I, I know that that's something that, strikes parents as odd because they're just so scared. They come to this place with fear because they want their child to, to survive first and foremost. They want them to thrive. Nobody mm-hmm. wants their child to, to not grow um, or, or not do well because they're not getting enough food. That's obviously a scary prospect. Um, so they're coming from a good place. It's just that the way we go about it and kind of the authoritarian model we take oftentimes is parents that we're going to control the situation with a heavy hand and make them eat doesn't actually work in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that kind of goes right into the next question we have, which actually I just really just wanting a few, a few tips. And is this something that you do with, with parents? Is this, I assume you do personal consultations. Is that correct? Not anymore. Judy does. Oh, uh, Judy, Judy does. Okay. Has become my full-time job, but I used to. Okay. So yes. do, do people come to you through, I guess, I guess, how does, how does your program work? Do they, you don't meet with them on one on, for, on one-on-one basis or do they just get tips through Instagram or, the, or your website pamphlets? Like how does it, I guess I don't really have a full understanding of how it even works. Sure. So we have online courses. We have two online courses. Online courses. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we were kind oh, of the perfect. first in this, this world, in this feeding world to do these. We launched our first in 2015. Um, so we have one for toddlers that actually applies to older kids and we're rebranding it and re redoing it this year to go from age one to age 10. Okay. Cause as you guys know, as dietitians, like it's oftentimes the same philosophy. It's just applied a little differently for different age groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so we felt that it wasn't, you know, people are saying, let's do an older, you know, a elementary age class. And to us, it just didn't feel ethical because we're teaching the same things. Right. Yeah. So, um, we are, we have that course for toddlers. And then we, a few years later, we released a baby led weaning course. Um, I was teaching it. I had been teaching it in Phoenix, Arizona for since 2013. One of the first people in the U S to teach this philosophy, but we really combine it with so much feeding techniques and science that Judy utilizes. So it's really, mm-hmm. it's a really fun way to learn about this. And, you know, it's a two hour course and you watch it. It's all video based and you watch these babies eating and what they're doing and, um, lots of resources for them to download. And so it's, that's what our, basically what our, um, our business is. We also have tons of, you know, um, free options and, you know, tons of resources on our Instagram and website, yes, but for people that really want, like, I need somebody to tell me what to do or that's what they get our courses and they're $69 okay. and $59. They're not super expensive. It's way cheaper than going to a professional. Mm-hmm. And what I found for me is that 
I could work with people one on one, but I could reach so many people by creating online content and helping so many more people at a time. So it just it just makes more sense uh, for me to be doing that. But that's yeah, that's how people learn from us. And then they they join our private Facebook group if they want some more um, help from each other. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So, so again, going back to the last question, then I know it can really be difficult for, for parents and myself included to understand just how few calories, kids, babies, you know, toddlers up until probably teenager. And for me, my kids are just tiny. So I think probably their whole lives, it's hard for the parents to understand how few calories they actually need, um, especially when compared to an adult or to themselves. Um, so I guess what is just some general, can you just give maybe one or two tips that you have um, to help parents understand the importance of allowing their kids to choose their own correct amount of food, even if it doesn't seem like it's enough to thrive? I think knowing that first off, toddlers especially usually only eat two decent meals a day. So if yours eats three, don't take that, don't, don't <laughs> take that as, don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay. That doesn't mean that they're overeating if they eat three a day. What I'm saying is that a lot of toddlers only eat decently at two meals mm-hmm. or maybe one meal and a bunch of snacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that is normal toddler behavior. Mm-hmm. What we're looking for is growth and not growth at the 50th percentile. We're looking for, are they following their curve and do they have good output? You know, are they pooping and peeing regularly? Um, obviously there's other signs of, you know, nutrient deficiencies, but for the most part, (laughs) pediatricians will tell you all the time, toddlers are finicky creatures with food. They are meant to eat like a bird one day and like a bear the next, although I've been told that birds eat a lot, but they're meant to eat very little (laughs) one day and very, very much a lot the next. And you'll notice this as your child gets older, they will go through phases where it doesn't seem like they can get enough food. And you're like, where are you putting this? Mm And I don't know if you've noticed this with your kids yet. And then they will go through days where they literally seem like they're existing on air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is considered normal. Yeah. That's so, that's so good to hear, Megan. I mean, I already knew this information, but just having you repeat it, I think maybe my husband would actually benefit from one of your courses. I try to tell him this, you know, we have a, a he just turned four and he's probably in the 30th percentile. He's real tiny, um, which is fine. We're small people. It's just very, it's very normal. And uh, he's following his growth curve perfectly, but he barely eats. And my my husband is often very frustrated by it, but that's just how he is. He's what you said. He eats the one larger meal, which isn't very large, but it's large for him. And then pretty much snacks and eats and eats another meal, maybe a larger meal again once or a second time during the day, but it's not very often. Um, but yeah, that's just a good, good reminder. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, interestingly, like he's in the 30th percentile, which means that he is like, are you talking about for weight or for height or both? Both. Okay. So that means he's taller than 30% of the kids he's age and he's shorter than yeah. 30, 70% of the kids he's his age. Would right. you say that that's probably similar to how you are height wise? Actually, no, I would say he's, um, I don't, well, actually, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I would say though that that probably matches my husband. So okay. yes, I would say, yeah. yes, he is taking after his dad. And that's the funny thing, you know, when kids grow, especially when they're growing pretty well in their curve, you know, as long as they're, they're willing to try, they're not getting pickier and pickier and pickier, but they kind mm-hmm. of exhibit like normal toddler selectivity and they're growing as expected mm-hmm. and you're doing what you need to be doing with, you know, serving a variety of foods, not pressuring them or forcing them to eat that kind of thing. 
mm-hmm. they're kind of doing what their body needs to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we don't need him to, why would we expect him to be a 70th percentile kid? He has never grown on that rate at that rate. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh no. I trust me. I know this. Um, but my and husband it's not, it's is not a grade. You, you're fully aware, but tell him that it's not a grade. It's, it's yeah. not it mean that he's like failing growth. <laughs> true. So true. We look at how does he, how does he grow compared to what we think he could be growing at for where he started from? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. it. It's not how he compares to anyone else and, or how he 50th percentile is not the goal. The goal is consistent, predictable growth. Right. That, and that is so key right there. I, I, I agree hundred percent. So that's a really good reminder. Hmm. Interesting. I have big kids. <laughs> oh, me too. I have we are, big kids. We are big people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, my, I'm, you guys probably don't know this. A lot of people, this surprises them. I'm almost six feet tall. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. My husband is six, four. And so yeah. when our kids are around, people are like, your kids are so tall. I'm like, wouldn't you be kind of worried if they weren't like, yeah. it's a weird, hello. <laughs> So we make so big true. babies, like big kids. And I my first actually came out at, she was a, eight days late and she was seven pounds, 15 ounces. And they're like, oh, she's a good size. I'm like, no, you don't understand. That's actually kind of small for our yeah. family. <laughs> <laughs> but still, yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. it was like obviously a perfect size for her, but it's just funny how, you know, your perspective is just so different depending on where. And when you said he's tiny, like he's a peanut, I was thinking you were going to say like, he's a, you know, on the first percentile or something like that. Yeah. But, and, and truthfully, I shouldn't even use those descriptive words. You know, he's tiny. That's, that's not correct of me to say that. I, I think of him as a small little boy, but I shouldn't say that, especially around him. Cause then he'll grow up thinking, Oh, I'm tiny. And you know, I don't know. I don't want to give him a complex or anything, but anyway. <laughs> well, it's easy. I know it's easy also just to, when you're talking like mom to mom, it's easy to also just relate and commiserate about the funny things that we notice about our kids. And we hear it all the time too. When you're out and about, you know, people will say, oh, they're so little. It's funny. Yes. It's like, does anyone ever say like, oh, they're perfect in every way for their body? Like, no, they <laughs> never, they're, so, they're tiny or they're huge. Or it's just funny how people are weird like that. Yes. And I'm, I've been guilty of it myself, so I can't. Yeah, yes. <laughs> And Megan, you have a lot more experience with this, but Jean and I just were, you know, as we were talking about this episode, um, you know, it seemed our children ate just about everything, uh, age Mm -hmm. two and younger, but then everything started to kind of crash and burn around age three. And some might say it had to do with kids going off to school or preschool and learning from their peers, also realizing they have a voice. But really, is there something else going on there? This seems, again, kind of par for the course, but it's it's infuriating at times. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I will tell you guys actually that you lasted quite a while. <laughs> oh, wow. really? Yeah. Yep. Okay. You usually see it starting somewhere between 12 and 24 months, but it can be later than that. And the wow. fact that you not until closer to three, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> huh. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot going on, obviously, in toddlerhood. Um, they're their brain's on fire, right? They're learning so many things. They're trying to be independent yet still terrified of being independent. They need that comfort that you're nearby and that things are predictable and yet they want to do self, um, especially around three. You know, people say the terrible twos. I think it's way worse. The three major stage is way worse than this. Personally, yeah. And then you don't really get prepared for it. You like sail through the twos and you're like, this isn't so bad. And then they hit three, you're like, what? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know what they call the fours, right? <laughs> Oh my gosh, what? Well, it's the F and fours. <laughs> I concur. Uh-huh. See, I didn't experience that with my daughter. Yeah, I think it's really kid dependent. I actually didn't experience any of it with my second until she was five. Five has been her special year. 
<laughs> so, but, but it's quarantine, right? It's, it's, you oh, know, yeah. she's going to school, totally different regulations and rules. And so there's a lot that can affect this. Um, they, there is a theory that, that you're asking, you know, like what could be the reason? <clears throat> I think you're right. Excuse me about the fact that they're a little bit more independent and they're, they're what they eat is one of the few things they can control. Mm-hmm. Think about this your whole day. If you're a kid, all you want to do is wake up and do awesome stuff, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to wrap yourself in, you know, painter's tape and you want to take a bath, but splash all the water out and, you know, drop things from a high level to see how they fall. And you are, you are, you are all about figuring out the world. That is your mm-hmm. job. And that's all you're motivated to do is play and learn about the world and understand the world around you. And some lady or dude over here is trying to get you to take a nap. They're making you sit down for food, like all these things you don't want to do. You, mm-hmm. you're not motivated by that. Um, and if you think about it, like you only have so much say in your schedule, right? You were having a great time and now you have to go get in the car and get ready for school or, um, you were really having fun with grandmas at grandma's and now your you know, parents come to get you. Like you don't have a say in any of this, but now when you sit at the table, you are in control of what goes in your mouth and you realize that that can wield some power and that your parents can get frustrated. Maybe they serve you something else because they're worried you're not eating. Um, you know, there, then some people kind of resort to like bribery and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Do this, get that. Like, so it gets really, it gets really tricky. Um, and then also there's a theory that kids at this age back when we were, you know, scavengers and we would be wandering around the forest trying to find food. They think that biologically, like we have evolved to have like a natural skepticism of food or like a neophobia because Hmm. We don't want kids wandering and just eating the poisonous berry from the random bush because they don't know better yet. Mm-hmm. And okay. so you're supposed to be cautious of new foods at that age as a protective mechanism. Huh. It's not that many years since we've been, you know, hunter gatherers and finding, <laughs> you know, I don't know if we've evolved that fast. So I, I do think that it helps parents to hear that because it's like, well, your child is actually hardwired to be skeptical of new foods or Food they, they even loved before, but suddenly I ate that one green food and this food is green and I don't like green anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty yep. much. Or I, I like this. I devour this food one day, but the next day I completely despise it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or you buy it, the, the trick. You know, the funny thing is we don't always understand their motivators. And so say you're at Costco when, you know, in the before times and you're shopping and they give you a little cup with a toothpick in it and some food on it and your kid devours it and they want yours and they love it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you buy the 12 pound package mm-hmm. and then you come home and they won't eat it at all. And you yes. realize they didn't eat it because of the food. They ate it because of the <laughs> toothpick. Yes. Yes. I did that once actually. Yeah. Uh, one of the yeah. sample ladies that both my kids, they wanted a second one. So I got them a second one and then I bought whatever it was with the coupon and they wouldn't even touch it. Nope. <laughs> It wasn't a tiny cup. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, okay. And, and kind of sticking with that same choosy phase time, which clearly can go for a long time and can start earlier than maybe me and Nicole experienced. I, you know, I find myself cooking meals every most nights, maybe not every, most nights, like three times a week and getting excited about introducing these to my children. But 90% of the time they don't want to eat it. And it is just so frustrating. What kind of tips um, do you have to prevent burnout? Moms, dads, 
who are cooking and just want to give up because their child just refuses to try every single time. Or if they do try, they always quote unquote hate it and just want the chicken nuggets. And do you (laughs) offer an alternative? Ooh, yes. So in general, no, we don't. (laughs) Good question. Because guess what? If they know chicken nuggets are on the second menu, why would they even try the other ones? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I say that with caveats, obviously, because there's sometimes with families and, you know, significant feeding issues that we have to, we have to work around stuff for a while, but in general, no. Um, and, and we also want to make sure there's something on their plate that's familiar or that they like, or that's, you know, a preferred food. And that's something mm-hmm. that they can eat more of and have more of. Cause again, remember they don't always eat three meals a day anyway. They're going to survive if they just have strawberries or bread with butter for dinner. Um, so you, if you're serving something super new, make sure that you always have a really like friendly, familiar food on their plates. Mm-hmm. That can okay. really help. So, that's, you know, for a lot of kids, it's something that's beige, like, or white rice <laughs> or pasta or, you know, bread. Bread's an easy one because you could always just throw toast in the toaster, or bread in the toaster oven and put some butter on it or something. And that's something that they can fill up if need be. Yeah. Um, we do kind of make it worse if we constantly offer other options because they will learn to expect that they're smart. They, they're not trying to be manipulative. They just, why wouldn't you, right? I'm a little bit wary of this food. Remember, I'm biologically hardwired to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. And then, but I know I could always have PBJ. So why don't I just do PBJ? Hello. Like, that just makes sense. Um, also remember that kids can take, you know, 15 to 20 times to like a new food. Mm-hmm. So it's a process. So you're saying not to offer the, you know, a second option especially if it's going to be the same thing. But what if you, what do you do if your kid is constantly not going to want to eat or try what you made aside from just letting them go hungry? Do you, are you saying just offer them a piece of bread and some strawberries or maybe the next day offer them with their meal, something they're familiar with. They'll for sure eat that. So then they'll be fine if they don't eat what else you made. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. So make sure that with the meal you have, like usually we don't recommend just one component because if that's all that they eat, or that it's all that you have and they won't eat that, that they don't have any options, Got but it. offer a few sides that they are more comfortable with. So, um, like I actually did this last night because I served lasagna and it was a new food for my kids. I just, I realized we'd never had lasagna before. And, um, our neighbor gave us some like homemade delicious lasagna. So I made mm. sure that we had, we had Caesar salad, which is actually preferred. I know a lot of you are rolling your eyes, but Caesar salad is a preferred food for my kids. They're older. They're really into it now. And, uh, uh, Nicole's kids love Caesar salad. Just yeah. oh one of them. And hello. There's a kid that always <laughs> eat low fat dressing. I'm like way about the Caesar salad now. Maybe oh, yeah. So, so true. Yeah. Um, and then um, berries, blueberries. And so she ate the Caesar salad and the blueberries. Now, a lot, a lot of you have been like, well, I would be thrilled if my kid ate that. But I did want her to try the lasagna. And she, you know, she poked around at it. We, so and this is, this is hard for me because there's so many techniques that we teach in our course that I can't really like, that's why we wrote a course because we can't simplify it into just a few, you know, sentences. But, um, this is where we would bring out like food play and food chaining and all the different techniques that we use. So in her case, like she's familiar with was like noodles. She had never really seen the lasagna, like sheet pasta before, mm-hmm. but we, I literally just try to deconstruct it because sometimes a more combo dish is overwhelming for a kid they just don't know what to expect so i literally pulled out one of the noodles and i was like let's scrape off some of the sauce do you want to roll this up do you want to pretend this is your finger and touch some things do you want to use this as lipstick and she did all those fun things we've been doing food play her whole life 
And then I said, do you want to try any of it? And she's like, no. I was like, okay, you don't have to if you don't want to. And that's a really powerful you know, phrase for kids because it reminds them that they're in control of what goes in their body. And sometimes they're actually more likely to eat when they remember that because it's like, nobody's forcing me to do this. I have complete autonomy here. Mm-hmm. I like that. So I just want to be sure Gina's question, because I snuck mine in. Do you, is any advice for mom burnout or the cook oh, yeah, in the sorry, house burnout burn. or well, do you would, get burnout? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. And if you follow our stories, you'll see like every Monday, usually, uh, um, I'm of course, I'm sure like the Monday after you guys, we, you know, release this podcast, I won't do it. But usually every Monday I show what I bought at the grocery store and what my meal plan is. And I say meal plan so loosely. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> Like I literally, I don't even put days on it anymore. I'm like, "Eh, we're just going to think these are three or four recipes. We're going to try to make this this week. And that's like the most four is the most I will make. Mm -hmm. And when we say recipe, I mean, like sometimes I'm taking that bruschetta sauce from Trader Joe's, dumping it on some boneless, skinless chicken thighs and putting in the instant pot. That's a recipe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in serving that with like, you know, they have that really good like cauliflower gnocchi or serving it with pasta and like, you know, I don't know, roasted carrots or something. Um, I don't like to make from scratch, um, like complicated meals all the time, or even more than maybe once a week, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything else for me has got, is really, really simple or else I can't survive it. And I don't think, you know, as a dietitian, I love eating lots of different types of foods and feeling good by the foods that I eat. And I still don't, I, I can't live like that. It's just not realistic with what I do with my work and with my kids' schedules. It's just not. And so I encourage parents to recognize when they're getting burned out. Try to incorporate some favorites into your kids, into your rotation. So like if your kid loves nuggets, is there a way that you can make breaded chicken that you all like to eat it? Maybe like a chicken Parmesan or something. I mean, heck, speaking of Caesar salads, one night I was like, I'm over (laughs) life quarantine all of this stuff and i made nuggets like dino nuggets for my kids and i made caesar salad for all of us like the bag caesar salad and i made and cut up some fruit and i put the dino nuggets on caesar salad you guys and can i just tell you (laughs) i was like (laughs) i'm not like i didn't grow up being like a nugget person i didn't really eat nuggets that much that was so freaking good and i just reminded me of the fact that you know there are ways for all of us to enjoy the same foods together so maybe your kid is like a meatball for, fan. You don't need to meet, make meatballs every night, but maybe you have them a few times a week. Maybe you do mm-hmm. turkey meatballs, you know, chicken meatballs. Maybe you do things that kind of look like meatballs that aren't meatballs, like, um, I don't know, other, other types of like falafel. Um, you know, there's, there's, there are ways to kind of allow your child to still have foods within their comfort zone while also getting them out of that. And I think, for those of you that have like a baby or a young toddler and you haven't hit that, that picky stage, I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to continue just to keep serving those foods. Just keep serving them and know that your child, as long as they're growing as expected, they've got good input, you know, I mean, good output. They're peeing and pooping regularly. Um, and, you know, they're still eating those snacks. So they're still eating a decent variety, even if it's not a ton of food that they're acting as as they should be for their age. That's completely normal. And it's a phase that they will go in and out and in and out of. I'm sure you guys have seen some improvements and then you're kind of back into it again. But it, but by the time they're six or seven, we want to start seeing 
kind of like a slow improvement now of like, wow, they're actually getting more and more adventurous. And my kids now are like, you know, pre COVID life, we, we would, we would go out to dinner with their friends and they would, they would all order salads. The girls would actually get their like kids meal kind of thing, but they would actually order salads instead of fries. Cause they started to learn that they really like that. They would, it started with one kid getting it. And then like, can I have some of that? And now literally like their group of friends, all of the girls get it with their burger. Because they, they learned that they really like it. They like how it tastes. So there is hope for, for you if you're in this, you know, stuck in this now. It, it does get better as they get older. And then one day they're not, you can't afford the amount of food that they eat because they're eating you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't imagine that. So that's like a really long answer to your question. I just think burnout is normal. And I think you have to do what makes it easier for you too. Yeah, you touched on it a bit. So the this choosiness at all different stages um, how can parents, guardians work through those kind of seasons with a positive mindset without letting their frustration kind of known? Um, any type of basic tips you have for just instilling a desire for adventure and curiosity, even for the choosiest of children? So one of the the best things that you can do is, and, and actually I think helps kind of bring our guard down a little bit, is let your kid come into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And let them be part of this this process. They are more likely to eat things that they touch and interact with. And you've probably mm-hmm. noticed this with, you know, if if you've ever gone like to a garden or a farm and you've picked food, suddenly they're shoving it in their mouth and you're like, what is happening here? You're just talking, we're actually writing a cookbook. And the, the cookbook author we're writing with um, was just saying that her her son, they were making like an Olaf with snow and they were using celery for part of it. She's like, he ate four celery sticks. He's never eaten celery in his life. And now he's like downing the celery because he was interacting with it. And it was a low pressure, fun environment. And I know the first thing people yeah. think of like cooking with kids, it sounds like a mess. It sounds awful. But even <laughs> just involving them and like, can you dump this into here? Or can you, you know, I cut all these things up. Can you just make sure that they all make it into the bowl? Or can you get the sauce or whatever and pour it in here? I think sometimes having those positive kitchen experiences together, not isn't only good for your kid, but it's good for you. It kind mm-hmm. of brings you back to like, what kind of memories do I want my kids to have about mealtime? Even in those frustrating moments, like I want them to still see this as a positive experience. And sometimes just, you know, cooking together can be like, oh, this is actually, this can be good. This is a good thing. Maybe, maybe it's not cooking a meal. Maybe you just stick to baking something that is like a really um, sentimental thing for you. Like maybe. Maybe you decide that, you know, you're so frustrated. They're not eating, but you know what? This weekend, we're going to make cookies together. We're going to forget about all of that. And we're just going to get in the kitchen together. And it's okay if we get flour in our hair. Like, let's just have some fun. I think it kind of helps to like, remember that there are some positive experiences that we can have around food. And it's not going to be like this forever. Your kid's not always going to feel like this around food. This is just like everything else they're doing developmentally. This is a temporary stage. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that. I actually, when you were talking about the gardening, I can remember the first time that Paige devoured vegetables was out in our garden. Nick had planted four cherry tomato bushes and she just went to town to the fact, to the point where I had to like tell her to stop. I mean, she just kept putting them in her mouth. She was probably one and a half at that, at that point. And, and Cameron does the same thing. It's like one of the one vegetables he will always eat. It's tomatoes because he grew up with them in our garden. So I think that's, yeah. so it's a, if you can do that, a garden, great. Or at yes. least get the kids in the kitchen. Fantastic exactly. idea. Yep. 
All right. So this is our last question, uh, Megan. So many parents listening may be thinking it's too late for them to change if in fact they haven't been doing some of the things that you've mentioned. For example, some listeners may have older kids in elementary school or even middle school, high school, and they're thinking there is nothing they can do at this point. It's too late. Um, is it ever too late? I know the answer is going to be no, but <laughs> that to spark that desire and to explore new foods in an overly choosy eater or one that is older um, that maybe their parents never really did any of these things with? Never too late. Um, just like <laughs> you anticipated, because I'm going to give you an example, multiple examples. I, um, I guess I'm just going to lump all the examples into one. We mm-hmm. get told all the time because we, we interact with thousands of people online and we get so many personal stories about how I was so picky as a kid. I hated everything. I like my parents, even, you know, stuff like my parents used to make fun of me for how picky I was. Mm-hmm. And once I got to college or whatever it was, when they kind of felt like they could have some autonomy about safely trying different flavors or people that kind of supported that, maybe they married somebody or they had, you know, had a partner that really like encouraged them to try different things. It was um, incredible how they kind of opened up their eyes to different flavors and textures and they kind of become reformed picky eaters, right? They're no longer, they're no longer like that. But when their kids get picky, I think that's a good perspective because they're like, you know what? I understand. I understand why you're feeling like that. I felt like that too, as a kid. Um, And it doesn't mean that it's going to be forever. Now I say that as an example of somebody that became less picky as an adult, but it happens in childhood. So many of the clients that we work with Suddenly, um, they're six, seven, eight, nine years old, and they're playing sports, and <clears throat> their energy needs are high. And suddenly, that drive to eat really kicks in. And I laugh because my friend's son literally wasn't a big eater at all, and then suddenly he at like seven years old, and everything she sent in those bento boxes for school, she's like, he would come. I swear, he was like licking it clean. He went from like <laughs> eating very little to all of a sudden eating. I had to send two of them. Like he, he literally couldn't get wow. enough food. And so I, I just would encourage you to remember that your child is constantly changing. So even though it feels like you're in this rut right now, they're changing. Now, I also encourage you to, to if you feel like there are any red flags, like if your kiddo can't touch certain textures, um, if, they, if they kind of like gag at the sight of things, there's a whole list of different um kind of feeding issues that they actually feeding matters has an assessment on their website. You can go and kind of see if you feel like there's something in your gut saying there's something wrong. This isn't getting any better. This is getting worse. It might be time to get evaluated. Even if your child's like 10, Mm. Um, there are things that we can do to help our kids along this path, like therapeutically that you wouldn't think to do ever as a parent. And it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It's just, again, one of those things, like if your kid needs glasses, no matter what you do, they're not going to see well until you fix the vision issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing with feeding. Like sometimes they just need a little extra help in that department. Um, but all hope is definitely not lost. You guys like think about yourself. Even what did you hate to eat as a kid that you can eat now? Avocado. Avocado. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I hate it. Guacamole, avocado. I feel like tofu. I've loved everything forever. <laughs> <laughs> the one person in the world, there was not one thing that you didn't like. How about how about nuts in your brownies? I still don't like that. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's I, just the weird. I I'll feel like pass no on kid liver. Likes, I don't oh, want yeah. liver, but otherwise, <laughs> give it to me. Dude, that's pretty awesome. And you know, and some and some kids really are like that from the start too, which is 
And I think that, you know, is that genetics? Is that environment? Is it a combo? Probably some mm-hmm. sort of combination. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I hated olives. Let me tell you, I oh. hated olives. <laughs> and now, like, dirty martini, like, oh, yeah, that's my favorite drink. Um, oh, that sounds that, so good. Like, yeah, doesn't it sound so good? I, I still cannot do raisins, but let me tell you, my grandma forced me to eat them. <laughs> and it was a carrot raisin salad, you know, with mayonnaise. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or very midwestern actually uh and i she forced like literally force fed them and i to this day refuse to eat that or refuse to eat mm-hmm. raisins I'm kind of mm-hmm. turned off by the whole thing and it's so funny like it's such a, a visceral response that it's a reminder that when we kind of cross the line and make them eat something we we kind of can turn them off to it forever so anyway the moral of the story is guys like don't don't be discouraged that they're not going to get there because oftentimes they will yeah. And, and so really let, let's, let's say I had a 12 year old or, you know, an older child at this point and I'm, and I'm not doing any of the things that you just said. And my child is very choosy and not very adventurous. Basically what you're saying is, you know, you can, any, any, it's never too late to start doing that. It, to, to mm-hmm. The tips that you're giving, um, no. it might kind of throw the child off a little bit. They're going to be wondering like, why aren't you doing X, Y, Z, but it never, it doesn't hurt to, to start now. No. And, and I would talk to them. I mean, kids as, as young as mm-hmm. toddlers understand when you talk to them, Hey, we're going to do some, something differently with food. You don't have to say we're going to start eating healthy or that kind of thing. Cause you sure. never want to like paint it as black and white, good or bad, but mm-hmm. just say, we're going to start eating different foods. I know we kind of stick to the same things over and over, but we want to get more adventurous and involve them. Mm-hmm. Can you come mm-hmm. with me? Or, you know, if we order your groceries online, like let's, let's experiment with some stuff. You can do some taste tests if you want. You can find some dips that you all agree that you really like, and you can dip the new foods and, you know, into it to kind of help. That's a technique that Judy uses often, but bring them into the process. They're going to be a lot more likely to to join. And, and really like, especially teenagers or preteens, they're old enough to do almost everything in the kitchen. Mm, yeah. So when you get them involved that way, like, you know, we're going to start cooking together. Like I want you to pick, you know, every week you get to pick one meal to make and we're going to do it together. It's amazing how much more interested they are in food and kind of opening their eyes to different things when they are in in charge. Mm -hmm. My kids like to play restaurant. That's another idea for younger kids, you know, maybe like six, six to 10 or something. Awesome. Well, Megan, this has been so great. Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Before we go, can you let our listeners know where they can find you? Sure. So we are online at feedinglittles.com. We do have a very active Instagram community at, it's just at feedinglittles. And then on Facebook, we're at feedinglittles as well. We also do have a free Facebook group that's just called Feeding Littles Group. And then if you purchase one of our courses, you get to um, access to our private Facebook group. All right. Thank you so much again. And uh, we hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. All right. So Megan was kind enough to give us a code for actually $10 off one or both of the courses. So you can purchase one of her courses for $10 off. Um, Also the other one for an additional $10 off. So it could be a a total of $20 savings. And of course, the coupon code is dietitians dish. That's D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N-S-D-I-S-H. So put that in when you are purchasing either or both of her uh, courses and you'll get up to $20 in savings. I think, I think that's great. I appreciate, we appreciate that, Megan. All right. What about mom wins or favorite new products? Nicole, what do you got? 
Uh, my bestie sent, I think it was for Christmas, actually, um, a skillet. It's called Our Place Skillet. And I went to their website. I had never heard of them before. I think they just make one skillet in one color. <laughs> Makes hmm. your choices very easy. Um, Gina, nothing sticks to it. Nothing. Oh. And it's almost like it doesn't need to be washed. It just gets like rinsed. Like there's just the cleanup is like two seconds. And what's the material? Of course you would ask me that. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it's <laughs> okay. it's not a cheap skillet. I, it has the price on there. Um, okay. But what is the price? I think it was like one forty nine. Oh, yeah, that is expensive. OK. Yeah. It's like up there, like with Le Creuset. And but yeah. man, it's like the salmon pinky peach color, which is really kind of okay. fun. I'm just impressed. It cooks everything so nicely. Is it because people are trying to get away from this Teflon or oh. is that what it is? Teflon, the nonstick coating they say could be dangerous so we have on all of our pans oh, basically geez i don't i, didn't, I don't know. know that it's yeah. is that why i didn't know why you like, what what made you decide to get this new skillet no it was a gift from my best oh it was a gift yeah oh, okay i'm sorry. sorry i thought she just recommended it no no you probably said that i'm sorry um stay <laughs> wow that's a nice gift yeah well, yeah she's got good taste she, she we're just those people that it's actually 145 dollars if we we don't always buy for each other, but when we do, it's something that we know the other's gonna like. <laughs> so we're, that is awesome. I would say we're generous gift givers, but we don't always exchange gifts. I don't know. I'm gonna put that on my must-have list because I have been considering buying new pans, uh, specifically because of all the things I hear about the nonstick coating. Nothing terrible, but you know, especially when it starts to chip, that's always a sign that you need to start. You need to get a new yeah. pan. Uh, and none of mine are, are like that, but you know. I think once I'm, I'm through with these, maybe something like that would be a good um, thing to invest in. That's okay. great. I pulled it. I'm yeah. sorry. I pulled up the, because no. um, I think other people might be wondering too. It says exclusive non-toxic non-stick ceramic coating made without potentially toxic materials like PFOAs, PF, PTFEs, and other PFAs, lead, cadmium, toxic metals, and nanoparticles. Mm. Yum. Nesting <laughs> beechwood. It doesn't. Sturdy aluminum body. Okay. Okay. Aluminum. I'm intrigued. All right. So I've got these raw carrot cake bites, which I posted on our Instagram. I made this with the kids. I believe I don't have the recipe in front of me. I guess I could click on this, but it's basically almond butter, coconut, carrots, maple syrup. They are delicious. I will tell you the kids devoured them when they first made them. I offered to them, you know, I offered them to them the next day and then put them in their lunch a couple of times. They did not want them. However, they did like them. I just think that maybe they were a little put off by the carrot in there. They're tasty. I think that they are kid approved. I think that if I, if I continue making these for the kids, they will eventually like them as a snack. They are just delicious and relatively easy to make. You just throw all the ingredients into a food processor. I hate cleaning up food processors, but it's easy. Oh, and what was the I feel like there's a dried fruit in there too. Eh, I can't, I can't find, oh, was Probably it dates? dates? It might've been dates. Yeah. 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 But they're just so, so good. I think I've made that same recipe before and they are, they're a little time consuming to make, but they're really good. And it makes a lot, doesn't it? If it's the right It thing. does. Yeah. And when, and the, the time consuming part is the rolling in the balls yeah. of the balls, right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's why I just make them huge. <laughs> like my Buckeyes. 
<laughs> I remember you telling me that they were t- they were time consuming to make Buckeyes. But the next day, I'm like, nah, that was easy. You were like, why? So I used big. four pounds of butter and eight <laughs> cups of powdered sugar and three cups of peanut butter, and I got like six balls out of it. I'm like, Gina, <laughs> mm, so good. They do make gigantic Buckeyes. I, you know, have you ever seen those in the store? Like the gigantic ones. You look at and you just want to be sick looking at it. Oh gosh, that, that's a that's the Ohio thing. There's no Buckeyes running around here. Come on. Yeah, now. I guess that's true. That's true. <laughs> this is Michigan land. <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking? Good call. All right. So coming up on April 18th, we will be dishing out another Q&A episode. So send us your questions. And until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitians Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. If you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. All right, everyone. Until next time, be well. And Nicole, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, Gina. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.